0: Our scripture reading today comes from John 12, verses 1 through 16. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. His disciples did not understand these things at first but when Jesus was glorified then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him this is the word of the lord thanks you may be seated good morning christ community
1: happy new year my name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Leewood campus, and a special welcome to all of our kids in the room on this Worship Together Sunday, and also to those of you watching in your pajamas online at home. We're glad you're here with us. Uh, if you were here last week, you saw Andrew actually preached in his pajamas. It was kind of silly. Um, I don't have his uh, self-confidence, so I just thought I'd <laughs> wear normal clothes today. So it's a new year, and part of what makes a new year exciting is all the possibilities that it will bring. On New Year's Day, we're filled with expectations for the coming year. This is the year that we're going to take that great family vacation, or this is the year that I'm going to eat healthy, or work out consistently, or start going to church regularly. This is the year I'm going to work on my marriage, or meet that special someone, or learn a new language, or how to play an instrument. At Christ Community, we recently finished our Advent series that was also all about expectation, The expectation of a promised king, of God incarnate who came to earth 2,000 years ago as a baby and who will one day come again. And today we begin a new series in the Gospel of John called Behold Your King. And you may remember that we actually started working our way through John's Gospel a year ago. We've taken some breaks along the way, but we're picking up now where we left off in August in John chapter 12. And John chapter 12 is all about expectation We're approaching the climax of the book and the expectation and excitement over Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem for Passover, they're as high as can be. But there are also clashing expectations, which leads to the escalating conflict, which will result in Jesus' death, which here in John 12 is only one week away. But before we get to John 12, let's remind ourselves of where we left off in the story back in August. Uh, So if you're not there already, turn your Bibles to the, the Gospel of John, And we'll actually start in chapter 11 and verse 45. And John is the fourth book of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can use your uh, table of contents if you need help finding it. Back in August, you may remember that we walked through the incredible story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And that story takes up most of John 11. And Lazarus had been dead for four days. And with the simple words, Lazarus, come out. Jesus called Lazarus out of his tomb. Resurrection, life from death, a dead man brought back to life. And of course, the news spread quickly. For three years, Jesus had been teaching and performing signs, but this was something else. Verse 45 tells us that many people saw what Jesus had did and they, had done and they believed in him. And so Jesus is gaining popularity, but not everyone is happy about it. Look with me at verses forty-five to forty-seven. Says many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, "What are we to do? For this man performs many signs." Now the chief priests and Pharisees—they were Jewish religious leaders. And we know that not all of them were opposed to Jesus, but many of them were. And it makes you wonder, what do these guys have against Jesus anyway? I won't rehash every detail, but in the Gospel of John, we've seen a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders over a couple of things. First, there's a conflict over who Jesus claimed to be. Both the special relationship he had with God the Father, as well as his claims that that made him equal with God. And second, Jesus has been really critical of their leadership, and he didn't mince words. Back in chapter 8, he said that their father is the devil, and their will was to do what their father, the devil, desires. Yikes. And so they tried to kill him right then and there, but Jesus escaped. And so these religious leaders, they've made up their mind about Jesus. Not even the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead will convince them that they're wrong. They've rejected him, but they cannot ignore him. Look at what they say in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So, What's going on here? What are the the religious leaders talking about? What exactly are they afraid of? And what does Rome have to do with anything? Let's remind ourselves of the historical context of this moment. For centuries, with one exception that lasted for about 100 years, Israel has been a conquered nation. The land has been passed from one world empire to another, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and now Rome. The real power in Jerusalem was not a Jewish king, but a Roman governor named Pilate. Pilate reported directly to Caesar, and, and any sign of unrest could bring a crackdown from the most powerful military in the world. The Jewish people, they were longing for the day when a Jewish king, the Messiah, would come and liberate them from their oppressors to bring freedom. And based on their reading of the book of Daniel, they had reason to expect that it could happen at any time. It's important to realize that the the Jewish leaders mentioned here, especially the Pharisees, they shared the same hope. They're not opposed to the idea of a militant Messiah who would fight for their freedom But they have decided that Jesus isn't that person. So it's not that they're not ready to revolt against Rome. It's it's that if they're going to revolt against Rome, they want to make sure they're backing the right horse. Because the consequences could be severe. And that's what they're worried about. If a revolt happens and it fails because they backed a person who isn't God's Messiah, the wrath of the Romans would be severe. Rome prided itself on, the, on peace and order that they had brought, their empire had brought to the world. And they did not take kindly to efforts to disturb that peace. And history actually proved that in one sense, these religious leaders were correct. Because a few decades after Jesus was crucified, a Jewish revolt against Rome did occur. And it happened again a, a few decades after that. And in both cases, Rome responded in ways that nearly wiped Jerusalem off of the map. They crushed both rebellions. Uh, This picture here is from the Arch of Titus that you can see it in Rome today. And Titus was a military general, Roman military general, whose armies destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. And this arch actually commemorates that event. Here's a zoomed-in picture of one of the uh, uh, scenes that's portrayed on it. You can actually see Roman soldiers here carrying off the different... uh, uh, temple furniture. So that so the guy just left the center with that, with that lamp there. The, uh, that's actually the, the lamp from the temple. And this, this arch is celebrating that moment when Rome went in and ransacked the temple and carried away um, all, all its furniture. And so this is what the Jewish leaders are afraid of in John 11:48. They're worried that Jesus is going to lead an uprising and the Romans will come and wipe them out And destroy their city and their temple. And they decide that the only way to stop this from happening is for Jesus to die. Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What these leaders quickly realized, though, is that it's not enough just to put Jesus to death. Skip down with me to John uh, 12, uh, verse 9. We'll come back to what's in between in a minute. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So as long as Lazarus remains alive, Jesus' miracle remains obvious. People keep coming to see the resurrected Lazarus, and more and more people are believing and, Jesus. and so these religious leaders decide that Lazarus needs to go, too. Let's pause here for a second and, and make note of something. The religious leaders have already made one really wicked decision, which is to kill Jesus. And once they've made one bad choice, look how easy it is to justify another bad one. They're ready to murder Lazarus in order to silence Jesus. They have started down a particular path. It started with rejecting Jesus, which led them to decide they needed to kill him. And now they decide they need to take out his companion as well. They make a bad decision and they justify it. That leads to another bad decision and that needs to be justified as well. And on and on it goes. And we do the same thing sometimes, don't we? Maybe it doesn't lead to murder, but we lie to cover up what we're ashamed of. Or we harbor hatred or resentment in our hearts towards someone. And so we justify slander or gossip and talking about them behind their backs. We start down a wrong path. But rather than go back and get on the right one, we keep persisting, justifying one bad decision after another. It can lead to the point where the people who love us don't even recognize us anymore. or We don't even recognize ourselves. And we ask, how do we get here? And the answer so often is that we started down a wrong path, and rather than do the hard work and go back and find the right one, we press on ahead, justifying again and again and again. And for the religious leaders in our story, they're they're ready to murder two people. These guys have memorized the Ten Commandments, can recite them backwards and forwards, awake and asleep, probably in lots of different languages. And here they are conspiring to break number six, thou shalt not murder Because they started down a wrong path, and that's simply the next logical step. So the religious leaders, they they have their eyes out for Jesus as the Passover festival approaches. Jerusalem is going to be packed with visitors during Passover. And they know that Jesus is likely to be there. They also know that with the number of visitors in town, the excitement around Jesus could quickly get out of hand. So orders go out. If you see Jesus report him so that we can arrest him. And of course, Jesus does come to town, and a crowd is waiting to meet him. Jerusalem actually wasn't big enough to hold all the pilgrims who had come for Passover. If you couldn't find a room in town, you either stayed in a surrounding village, like Jesus did in Bethany, or you camped in the hills outside the city. So the city is packed With people, and they're celebrating Passover, the the event that commemorates God's rescue of his people from slavery. As the people think back to that rescue, they expect that someday God will do the same for them to rescue them from Rome, just as he did their ancestors from Egypt. So you can imagine the buzz in the air as people consider these things rescue in the past, God's promise to rescue again in the future. And now, news of Jesus, who's working miracles and proclaiming God's kingdom. Perhaps the time really is now. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel." The crowds gather palm branches, and they, they line the streets as Jesus enters town. In the ancient world, when a king would visit a city, the residents of that, of that city would do the same thing that these people are doing here. They, they'd meet the king in the surrounding countryside and escort him back into town. It was a way of honoring the king and showing excitement about him coming. And so this crowd, they yell, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are both quotes from Psalm 118. But the crowd adds something that's not part of Psalm 118. They say, even the king of Israel, they're making an interpretation here that's not explicit in that psalm. The person the psalm is talking about, and I encourage you to, to read that at some point this week, they say that's, that's the king of Israel. And they identify him here as Jesus. He's the king of Israel. And he's here now riding into the city through the welcoming crowds, just like any other ancient King would. And notice that Jesus doesn't reject the title of king. He doesn't say, no, no, I'm not your king. He actually encourages it by his choice of mount. Because he rides into town, not on a stallion, but on a donkey. Verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is a quotation from Zechariah chapter 9. And Jesus evokes it intentionally. That chapter talks about good, uh, about good news of a coming king who will bring salvation and peace to the nations. And Jesus wants the crowd to make the connection. He is that king. And this is exactly what the religious leaders had feared. Jesus thinks he's the king and the crowd is on his side. The next logical step there's a clash of kingdoms, Jesus versus Caesar, Israel versus Rome, a bloody revolt in which the victors will claim the spoils. From a human perspective, that's what this appears to be building to. But that's not what Jesus has in mind. There will be a clash of kingdoms, but it's not Jesus versus Caesar. And blood will flow, but it won't be the blood of armies. And victory will come not through conquering, but through submission and death. And that's what Jesus has had in mind all along. Let's jump back up to the final scene that took place before Jesus entered Jerusalem. The last night before the climactic final week of Jesus' life. And Jesus spent that evening with his closest friends. And we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus hung out with Mary and Martha and Lazarus that evening. If you were Jesus and you knew it was coming in the following week, who would you want to spend time with? Probably your closest friends, right? In John 11, uh, John went out of his way to show and tell us again and again how much Jesus loves this family. Let's pick up the story in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So here's here's the scene. Tomorrow Jesus is going to ride into, into Jerusalem where part of the population will hail him as king and the other part wants to put him to death. It's going to be a hard week. His disciples will misunderstand him and ultimately abandon him. One will betray him. Another will deny knowing him. There will be a sham trial where he will be falsely accused and unjustly sentenced to death. He'll be stripped naked and mocked and paraded about. There will be the unfathomable mental and emotional pain, not to mention the physical pain of beatings and the torture of the cross. That's all all coming. But here Jesus eats a meal with his friends. Martha serves the meal. Lazarus joins him at the table. And Mary... Verse three, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And many of us here today are so familiar with the Bible that we can miss something about this verse, which is this, that what's happening here is really weird, isn't it? If you think about it, that's why I'm glad the kids are in the room today We need people with fresh eyes who will notice that this is not normal behavior, at least not in our world today. So what's going on here? This expensive ointment, nard, had to be imported from India, and that's a long way from Israel by trade caravan. It's a luxury, and she has a pound of it, which is a lot. In verse 5, Judas points out that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. That's almost a year's salary for a day laborer. So think something like $30,000 today. So Mary takes $30,000 worth of perfume, an entire pound of it, and she pours it out on Jesus. It seems excessive. And really it is, that's the point. It is excessive. Mary's act here is outrageous, and and it's a waste. At least that's what what Judas says. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot One of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So his motives aren't pure, but he he does have a point, doesn't he? We know from the rest of Jesus' ministry that the poor were near and dear to his heart. It's easy to imagine Jesus agreeing that the perfume should have been sold and the proceeds directed to the poor. But that's not what he says. Verse 7. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I'll come back to verse 7 in a minute. Verse 8 says, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is unfortunately one of those verses that has been abused by Christians at times. It's been used by some to justify ignoring the plight of the poor. And there's a much larger conversation that we could have about that. But for now, I'll just say that in my opinion, it's, it's impossible to reconcile that view of ignoring the poor based on what Jesus says here. With God's concern for the poor that we see throughout the rest of Scripture. Jesus' point seems to be that his presence and this particular moment in the story make Mary's actions appropriate. And not just appropriate, but essential. Look at verse 7 again Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Okay, what does that mean? That she may keep it for the day of my burial. Because she hasn't kept it. She's already poured it out. This uh, this verse is notoriously difficult to translate. And I think Jesus means something like what we see uh, in another translation, the CSB. It says, Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. Now on the surface, this translation isn't that much better because Jesus is still a week away from being buried. So in pouring it out now, Mary hasn't kept it for his burial. But scholars point out that the smell of this perfume is very strong and Mary uses so much of it that the smell likely lingered on Jesus' body and his clothing throughout the upcoming week. So think about that. In everything everything that Jesus is going to experience and go through in the upcoming week, humiliation, rejection, abandonment, crucifixion, at every moment along the way, He's going to have the smell of Mary's perfume to remind him of this disciple who loves and adores him, to bring him comfort. Even in death, the smell will linger on his body because she's kept it for the day of his burial. And that's the twist. Don't don't miss it. She's kept it for the day of my burial. This is probably news to Mary. John doesn't record her response or anyone else's response for that matter. He simply moves on to the next scene. But, but I'd be surprised if Mary thought she was applying embalming perfume. In those days, people would apply these same kinds of perfumes to a corpse to cover up the odor of decay. And Jesus seems to indicate that that's what she's doing. And again, that's the twist. While everyone else is looking for a conquering king who will ride into Jerusalem to slay their foes, Jesus announces that he is the one who's going to be slayed. Jesus is the king who comes to be buried. The irony of the triumphal entry that occurs the following day is that it looks like the parade of a conquering king, but it's actually about a dying king. Or better yet, it is about a conquering king, but it's about a king who conquers by dying, by laying down his own life, and in so doing conquers the ultimate enemy, death itself. As we enter this new year, in this new series in the Gospel of John called Behold Your King, Jesus is inviting us to join him as he marches toward death. Jesus is is inviting us to a deeper discipleship. A discipleship that follows Jesus through pain, through rejection, through humiliation, to the cross and the empty tomb on the other side. So we invite you to join us this spring as we behold our king. We'll explore this more in the, in the coming weeks, but this morning I want to suggest that this passage offers us a glimpse of what it looks like to behold our king. And, and I think our model is this family that Jesus loves. On one side of this story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus were the religious leaders who are scheming to put Jesus to death. And on the other side are the crowds who see in Jesus only a path to their freedom. The first group is afraid of losing what they have and the other just just wants the benefits of what he can do for them. But in the middle, there's this family that just wants to be with Jesus. There's Martha diligently serving and Mary lavishly giving to the one she loves. And Lazarus, go, go back to chapters 11 and 12 and count how many times he's mentioned. And yet he only actually does three things. He dies... He walks out of his tomb, and he joins Jesus at the table for dinner. Martha and Mary and Lazarus, the friends Jesus wanted to be with, on his last evening of calm before the storm. Each is beholding their king in their own way. And they probably had their own questions, their own expectations that would be radically shattered in the week to come. But for now, each is content just to be with Jesus. I'm going to close by making three brief summary points. First, we've seen that Jesus is a different kind of king. A king anointed to be buried. A king whose power is displayed in his extreme vulnerability and weakness. Will we worship him not just for his power, but also for his weakness? Will we behold our king by worshiping him in our own weakness? Second, We've seen three different responses to Jesus. Some want to silence Him. Others want something from Him. And then there's this family that just wants to be with Him. Will our faith this year move from fear and control to intimacy? Instead of focusing on the benefits of faith, can we be content just to be with Jesus? Finally, In the coming months, as we continue to explore these events from the final week of Jesus' life, will we behold our king by following him to the cross? In Matthew 16, Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. In this new year, May we follow Jesus to the cross. and losing our lives, may we find true life in him. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, thank you for this beautiful story of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Like these dear friends of yours, may we find contentment and life by being with you. In this new year, help us to truly behold our king, like this family, to find joy in you, to walk in deeper discipleship, and to find life by following you to the cross. In the name of our King of Kings, Jesus, we pray. Amen.